section three of the roman triumvirates by charles merivale this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami chapter two ascendancy of pompeius his subjugation of the cilician pirates and conquests in the east part one pompeius on his return from spain had accepted the flatteries of the senatorial party but he had not formally engaged himself to serve it he preferred to hold all parties in play and wait upon events his success against spartacus confirmed him in the conviction of his own transcendent abilities and persuaded him that he was necessary to the state and must one day be invoked as an umpire or dictator to control the administration of affairs on the restoration of peace he was piqued at the spirit with which a rising public man gaius julius caesar the nephew of marius and heir to a portion of his influence was attacking the chiefs of the oligarchy for malversation in the provinces the proceeding was popular and pompeius determined to follow in the same track and seem at least to take the lead in it he encouraged a bold young orator marcus tullius cicero to denounce the crimes of Ares. notorious as he was this culprit was powerfully supported the nobles conscious of the importance of the case rallied strenuously around him his defence was undertaken by hortensius the ablest advocate of their party the favourite of the judges the king as he was called of the tribunals could they get the process postponed to the year ensuing they might expect favour from the praetor who would have to select the judges for the trial every effort was made to gain this point the prosecutor was young and inexperienced he was little known being a new man a citizen of the obscure Volscian municipium of arpinum of an equestrian family indeed but of no civic distinction at rome he had already pleaded with great ability on some former occasions and had evinced much spirit in resisting the application of a law of sulla even during the dictator's lifetime a quaestor in sicily a few years before he had gained credit for purity as well as for activity the sicilians themselves placed the conduct of their impeachment in his hands he began by a display of judicious firmness in resisting the call for delay but at the same time he required on his own part some time to collect evidence and it was only by the most strenuous efforts that he succeeded in furnishing himself with his proofs without allowing the defence the advantage which it demanded popular favour at rome was strong in his behalf and the consuls pompeius and crassus openly avowed their approval as soon as he opened the case hortensius discreetly counselled submission b c seventy verus declined to plead and withdrew sullenly into exile but cicero was not thus satisfied he published not only the speeches he had delivered but the further pleadings he had prepared for the full establishment of his charges and the series of very narrations still exists as an imperishable record of proconsular misgovernment they fell no doubt upon many willing ears the consuls nothing loath 
restored to the knights their share in the Judicia, and thus broke down the great bulwark of oligarchical authority. To give irresponsible decisions in the law courts had been originally the special privilege of the Senate, but this function which had been grievously abused to party purposes had been directly transferred by Gaius Gracchus to the knights, had been divided between both orders by the legislators of the next generation, and again confined exclusively to the first by the reactionary policy of Sulla. Catullus and the most patriotic among the nobles assented cordially to the decorous reform of the Aurelian law, though the proudest and blindest of the party still scowled upon it with ill-suppressed indignation. The restoration of the tribunate had already wrested from the Senate one half of the political ascendancy which Sulla had extorted for them. The admission of the knights to a share in the Judicia deprived them of what yet remained. But Pompeius was not yet satisfied. In his newborn zeal for the popular interests, he determined to subject the nobles even to personal degradation. Since the time of Sulla, no lustrum had been held. The consuls insisted on the appointment of censors. The citizens were duly numbered, their property valued, the personal merits of the members of the Senate passed under review. The names of sixty-four of the order were now expunged from the roll, and the whole body, august as it was, could not but feel that it was strictly the instrument of the state and not its master. All the blood of Sulla's massacres had secured for his political work only eight years of existence. Pompeius was now at the height of his popularity. The people were delighted at the authority which he had acquired, having been exalted to the consulship while still only a knight, and having extorted from his colleague Crassus, the elect of the nobles, the deepest deference and even subservience. The nobles themselves, though exasperated at the superiority he asserted, and jealous of the interest he was making with the popular faction, could not venture to break with him, and still tried every means to attach him to their own side. The consuls, it was said, regarded each other with coldness. A citizen came forward and asserted that he had been ordered by Jupiter in a dream to tell them not to lay down their office without being reconciled. Pompeius maintained a haughty reserve, but Crassus deferentially took his hand, exclaiming, Romans, it is my part to give way to the great Pompeius, whom you have twice honoured with a triumph, while he was still only a knight. But Pompeius treated the commons with no less reserve and coldness. He withdrew from the popular business of an advocate, he estranged himself from the forum, and if he ever appeared in public, took care to surround himself with a retinue of clients and flatterers. He carried into the city the manners of the camp or even of a court. This affectation of royal demeanor was designedly adopted. Doubtless Pompeius, like other Roman generals before him, had conceived the idea of assuming sovereign authority, but his temperament was cold and sluggish. His ambition was of a passive character. He hoped to have greatness thrust upon him, and he saw in the circumstances of the times many indications that the tyranny would surely devolve on the chief who had patience to wait for it. 
meanwhile he was on the watch to seize on any opportunity that might present itself for maintaining or even increasing his acknowledged preeminence such an opportunity was offered by the alarms which were now excited in rome by the prevalence of piracy in the mediterranean waters from east to west the great inland sea was traversed by the fleets of plunderers who had their strongholds and their arsenals in the bays of cilicia but who were probably recruited from bands of lawless wanderers on every coast the civil wars of rome had deprived many thousands not only in italy but throughout the provinces of their ordinary means of subsistence they had engendered moreover a general spirit of licentiousness and a greed of plunder and while the continent was kept under some control by the armies of the republic the sea was left without a police and had become the common field of enterprise for buccaneers from all quarters the cilician pirates as they came to be denominated had assumed a certain political consistency they claimed to transact business with chiefs and potentates sertorius had negotiated with them when he was seeking an asylum beyond the reach of the roman army spartacus had bargained with them for a passage across the straits of messana they might give way indeed to the armed flotillas which convoyed the transports of the republic to greece or asia but they attacked single vessels or small squadrons with increasing audacity murdering or carrying into captivity roman citizens and even high magistrates descending upon farms and villas on the coasts of italy itself and sweeping off peaceful travellers from the crown of the appian way these injuries and indignities gross as they were continued to be long endured for the magnates of the city and of the provinces found their account in them from the abatement they caused in the price of slaves in the markets of delos and other centres of that nefarious traffic but when by their attacks upon the corn vessels from africa and sicily the pirates began to threaten the city with scarcity the voice of the multitude made itself heard it was determined to strike at the base of the hostile power servilius was charged to carry on a regular war against the public foe his operations were prolonged through three campaigns in which he besieged and reduced some maritime posts and pursued his opponents into the mountains obtaining for his exploits the title of isauricus and the honour of a triumph marcus antonius and after him metellus attacked the pirates in their strongholds in crete and from this circumstance metellus acquired the surname of creticus b c sixty eight with much labour and by slow degrees the roman power was established among these obscure fastnesses but the vessels of the enemy skilfully handled for the most part escaped and found for themselves other retreats still more inaccessible the tribes continued to be threatened with famine as before and they insisted at any price on the thorough subjugation of the importunate foe for this object they were ready to sacrifice their political jealousies and to create a power in the state which should be independent of their annual suffrages and of the vicissitudes of party in the year b c sixty seven the tribune gabinius proposed that some veteran statesman some one who had filled the highest office in the republic 
should be invested for three years with absolute authority both by sea and land as far as fifty miles into the interior over a belt of soil within which lay all the greatest cities of the roman dominion throughout the world for the moment the crafty intriguer withheld the name of the individual whom he would thus raise to irresponsible power but both the nobles and the people readily understood that he pointed at the great pompeius the nobles would have had gabinius slain one of his own colleagues retained in their interest put his veto on the resolution catullus who was himself popular with the citizens pointed out the hazard of exposing a personage so precious to the perils of an untried warfare who could replace pompeius he exclaimed if pompeius were lost to you yourself cried the people good-humouredly catullus desisted from further opposition the motion was carried five hundred galleys and one hundred and twenty thousand soldiers were voted and the resources of the state thrown open to the fortunate aspirant this vote in b c sixty seven it has been often said was the actual commencement of the empire it was warmly supported by another candidate for greatness the heir eventually of more than the power of pompeius the future dictator and emperor gaius julius caesar as soon as this decree was announced the pirates knew that they would be dealt with in earnest and withdrew promptly from the coasts of italy stores of grain flowed in and its price in the roman market fell at once the people believed that the mere name of their favourite had finished the war but pompeius knew that it was not so and he had no wish that it should be so he had obtained imperial powers and he was determined to make use of them he chose for his lieutenants twenty-four senators all men of distinction and experience in command he divided the mediterranean into thirteen regions and appointed a squadron to each in the space of forty days he had swept the whole western track of the great inland sea and driven the enemy into the opposite quarter the pirates finding his measures irresistible made no head against them their leaders readily betrayed one another and the politic commander employed the services of each in the general pursuit the few that still held out were driven into the creeks and bays of the cilician coast where they were defended by their stockades and fortresses but these one hundred and twenty in number were speedily surrounded and overthrown pompeius burnt as many as thirteen hundred of their vessels and destroyed all the hostile magazines and arsenals his captives he lodged at various spots along the shores where they had previously carried desolation ninety days sufficed to terminate the contest the success was certainly complete for the time but piracy was too easy and tempting a trade to be permanently eradicated whenever during the civil troubles which succeeded rome allowed herself to neglect the police of the seas the coasts of the eastern mediterranean again swarmed with maritime robbers and the levant has continued to this day to be similarly infested under similar circumstances but the roman people had no misgivings they rejoiced in the plenty which seemed to be now assured for them they exulted in the success of their admired hero and not only lavished upon him caresses and honours but allowed him to insult the other chiefs of the state 
and trample upon the officers who ventured to exercise the authority entrusted to them. He required the distinguished consular Quintus Metellus, who had obtained an independent command for the reduction of the Cretan brigands, before his own extraordinary appointment, to desist from his operations, and when Metellus demurred to the order, actually sent one of his lieutenants to assist the enemy whom he was employed in subduing. The people pardoned the affront to their own majesty, but history has not failed to record the vexation even of the great commander's friends at the jealousy he evinced in this and many other instances of all who seemed in any degree to trench upon his own exclusive pretensions. Meanwhile, the opposition of the public cani, the greedy collectors of the taxes in Asia and of their supporters in the city, had reduced Lucullus to enforced inactivity. Some of his troops had been withdrawn from his standard and transferred to Glabrio in Bithynia. Another portion had been put under the command of Marcius Rex in Cilicia. Mithridates and Tigranes had seized the opportunity for attack. Legions and detachments had suffered severe defeats, which Lucullus, with weakened forces, had with difficulty repaired. His own mutinous soldiers had refused to be led in pursuit of the enemy, and once more the allied kings had invaded the Roman provinces and driven the new commanders of the legions far back towards the Aegean. But Pompeius was now at hand on the coast of Cilicia. The intrigues of his partisans at home had fully ripened. The tribune Manilius stepped forward and argued that the conqueror of the pirates should be at once charged with the conquest of the arch-enemy Mithridates, who had baffled for twenty years the greatest captains of the Republic. To accomplish so great a service he must be invested with sovereign power over all the East. The authority he already wielded against the pirates must be extended and enlarged. Here was another step toward empire, but it seemed a small step. Necessity knew no law. Many forces from many quarters combined to support the proposition. The nobles were alarmed and reluctant, but the Marian party were all the more urgent for its adoption, and the Marians were now led by a strong and able chief in the person of Caesar. Crassus himself was well inclined to encourage any motion which tended to establish a precedent for unlimited authority. Cicero was carried away, partly by his genuine enthusiasm in favour of abler and stronger men than himself, partly, no doubt, by the flatteries lavished upon him by Pompeius, by Crassus, and by Caesar, who all felt that his eloquence might be of use to them, while the nobles continued to repel him as an upstart, unworthy of their favour or countenance. The lofty spirit of Catullus was of no avail against so many and such varied forces. The bill of Manilius, 68 B.C., was carried in the tribes with enthusiasm, and the sullen opposition of the Senate was almost contemptuously overruled. The Romans ascribed to Pompeius the character of a profound dissembler. They said that on this elevation of fortune he pretended to be deeply troubled, and professed to regret the honours which were thrust upon him. But his acts evinced no abatement of pride or resolution. He assumed at once all the powers that were entrusted to him, and chose his lieutenants and appointed them to their respective services with alacrity. 
as soon as he had collected his troops around him he summoned the allies and dependents of the republic in the east to attend upon him and take orders from his camp while at the same time he seemed studiously to humiliate his predecessor in command by traversing his orders and political arrangements the two generals met the one advancing the other retiring in galatia pompeius insulted lucullus with pretended compliments and actual affronts but lucullus took care to inform his countrymen that he had himself already broken the power of the enemy whom his rival was sent to crush and that the final overthrow of mithridates was already prepared to his successor's hands as had been the overthrow of spartacus and of sertorius pompeius however did not intend to confine his views to the destruction of any single enemy his commission extended to the complete settlement of the affairs of the east the kingdoms of armenia and parthia were to be rendered subservient to the policy of rome the alliance between tigranes and phraates was to be finally broken and these princes were to be made mutually jealous of one another and severally dependent upon the support of the republic the frontier of the euphrates was to be secured by placing its bridges in the hands of lesser vassals who could at any convenient moment be transformed into subjects the eastern shores of the mediterranean were to be reduced to the condition of roman provinces pompeius finally annexed the rich and populous realm of syria and found an opportunity to interfere in the disputes of the reigning family in judea and establish a dependent sovereign on the throne of jerusalem the mingled craft and violence with which he acted throughout these transactions was sufficiently disgusting but it must be confessed that no portion of human annals is more odious than the history of the tyrants of judea who had risen on the fall of the syrian power in that country every step however harsh and oppressive that rome took in displacing the native rule and preparing the way for her own served to mitigate some of the sufferings of the people and to pacify at least their internal discords End of section three